So I want to say hi to everybody that's in this room and everybody at all of our campuses and around the Bay Area, folks that are joining us online. Uh, so excited about this series, this season, and glad that you're with us. Uh, a while ago, Nancy and I are at dinner with some friends, and she mentions casually that she has a meeting to go to on the coming Saturday night. And I didn't know about this. And I think, why didn't she bother to tell me about this before now? Now, she might have told me before. I may have forgotten, but that thought doesn't occur to me. I had mentally made plans for us on that Saturday night, and now I'm a little disappointed that she's not going to be around. In fact, I even feel a little rejected by her. Some voice deep inside me speaks. Some immature, pouting Scandinavian voice says, you can show her. You can make her feel bad. And so I do, in real subtle ways. I move a tiny bit away. I stiffen up just a little bit. I make sure that no part of my body is touching any part of her body. I look at her a little less. I look at our friends a little bit more. Anybody else ever do this kind of thing, or is this only me? Uh, I'm a little cold. I'm a little mean. Not so much that it would be obvious to the other people, but enough so that I know Nancy will know. And then I realize what's going on, and another and better voice speaks in my mind and says, uh, you are not being your best self right now. And so I look right at her and I smile and I give her arm a little squeeze. And under the table where no one can see, her foot reaches over and nudges my foot and gives it a little rub. And I know her foot is saying, it's okay, we're connected, we're together, we can talk when we get home, but know that I love you and know that I'm glad to be married with you and know I'm sorry I'm not going to be with you on Saturday night. Nancy has a very expressive foot. Now, that tiny little shift, that tiny little repair in relationship, that moment, you've all experienced this, when thoughts turn from hostility to humility, and emotions turn from irritation to affection, and intention turns from wanting to inflict pain to wanting contrition, wanting to connect. Uh, that's a little spiritual force invented by God, and the word for it is reconcile, reconciliation. In reconciliation, barriers to community get torn down. People who are estranged and divided get reunited. Hostility and woundedness gets replaced with healing and goodwill. The old prophets of Israel longed for reconciliation, said our world thirsted for it so deeply that they would use great art and imagination to picture it. They said when the Messiah, God's anointed, came, he would bring reconciliation. And they would sometimes use pictures of peace coming, not just to human beings, but to all of God's creatures, to all of God's creation experiencing peace and shalom. So the prophet Isaiah, in talking about the coming of the Messiah, says it'll look like this. The wolf will lie down with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the goat, and the calf and the lion and the yearling together. No violence, no pain. And the little child, powerless, will lead them. And we imagine reconciliation happening in our world, on a grander scale, we think, what would it be like for North Korea and South Korea to live together as one at peace? What would it be like for Israelis and Palestinians to live in harmony in our own country? What would it be like if uh, the wounds of 250 years of race slavery and then another 100 years of Jim Crow laws and lynchings and, 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 and then years of racial injustice got healed? Or we imagine in a personal way, uh, a friend who's married and there's been estrangement for a lot of years, they run so deep that at night when they're in bed, if, 
he happens with his foot to touch his wife while she's sleeping, her body will physically just reflexively pull away. And he feels once more that pain of distance. Imagine a marriage getting healed. Visions of being reconciled capture our hearts because divisions hurt us so much. Families, marriages, workplaces, kids and gangs, our nation. And and way too often, even religious groups, spiritual communities, even Christians become one more divisive faction trying to power up on other groups. That is why spiritually, personally, socially, systemically, the crying need for our world is to be reconciled. We can't seem to do it, but it's at the heart of the Christmas story. Paul wrote to that little church in Corinth, God reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave to us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. So, gang, this Advent season, this month at Menlo Church, we will become students of reconciliation. We're going to learn what does it look like, what does it take to be reconciled with God. I'm going to invite you to do that today. And then next week, how do you get reconciled with other people? And then the third week, how do we become agents of reconciliation? That unbelievable mission that Paul said had been given to the church, to become agents of reconciliation to our world. And then all of that will lead up to Christmas Eve. Now, here's part of why we're doing this. I think the best part of the holiday season we're in is that this is a time when families get together. I think about the hardest part of the holiday season that we're in is that this is a time when families get together. And we all grew up in a family. And we all grew up in one of those families where somebody had issues. Here's a quick summary of the book of Genesis, just the first book in the Bible that is a lot about families. In the very first family, the older brother Cain killed his brother Abel. And then a couple generations after that, this guy named Lamech comes along. He's a polygamist, introduced polygamy to the world, and a murderer. And then Noah got drunk. His family's a train wreck. Abraham impregnated his wife's maid. Jacob deceived his father and stole his twin brother's inheritance. Jacob had 12 sons by two wives and their two maids. He favored one of them, Joseph, so much that the other sons kidnapped Joseph, wanted to kill him. One of the brothers named Judah had them sell Joseph, their brother, into slavery and cover his robe with goat's blood to make their dad think Joseph was dead. And these are the families that made it into the Bible. So sit up straight. Your family's doing way better than you thought. Everybody's welcome. Nobody's perfect. Anything's possible. And in the middle of all of this dysfunction comes today's story, what we're going to look at today. And I'm telling you at the outset, this story is a Christmas story. Now, you will not believe me. You are going to think it is not a Christmas story. It is a really weird story. I understand that it's a weird story, but you're going to be wrong. It is a Christmas story. You just have to stick around through the weirdness till we get to the end. So here it is. Genesis chapter 38, this man, Judah, leaves his brothers and goes down to a place called the Dulem and marries a Canaanite girl. Now, to an ancient Israelite uh, reader, this would immediately mean trouble. 
In that day, you do not leave your brothers. So they would immediately understand there's a broken family going on here. And marrying a Canaanite meant if you were an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, you were choosing idolatry and unfaithfulness. So Judah is going down a bad road from the very first sentence. Judah and his wife, we never learned her name, have three boys, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And the boys grow up. We're told, Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Now, you'll notice the writer wants to be sure we catch where Ur is in the birth order. Twice, he says, uh, Judah's firstborn. Even in our day, firstborns are uh, disproportionately the achievers, the leaders, their presidents and prime ministers and stuff. In the ancient world, the firstborn would be the heir to everything, would get all the good stuff. That's why he is named Ur, handsome Ur, smart Ur, strong Ur. Andy Stanley says, we all want to live in the land of Ur. And it's true. But it turns out he's wicked Ur. So he's out of the story real fast. Now, in the ancient world, Israel, but also other nations, if a woman's husband died, her father-in-law was obligated to have her marry his next oldest son. They obviously did not have any kind of national social welfare system or safety net or anything. So everybody would have recognized her dad, father-in-law, Judah, is obligated to do this. His second son is Onan. This is a polygamous culture. Presumably, Onan would have other wives. But if Onan had a kid by Tamar, that kid would get the firstborn inheritance, which would mean a financial loss for Onan and his little brood by other wives. So Onan figured out a way to cheat Tamar and shame her in that culture with barrenness and get away with it. This is in the Bible. Genesis chapter 38, verse 8. Then Jonan said to Onan, sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his, so whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. Remember, this is a Christmas story. Read it to the kids if they're in their 20s. Now, to the ancient reader, see, Tamar would, would uh, be a, a tragic victim. They would all feel for her. She wanted a good thing. For one thing, to bring offspring into the world. And in the ancient world where survival was dicey and the human population struggled, that was a good thing for a woman to do. Um, not only that, but even though she is a Canaanite, pagan, idolatrous, she wants to be a part of the story of the people of God, the line of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah. She was devoting herself, this Canaanite woman, to be a mother of the people of God. And yet she'd been given to not one but two men of great wickedness. And they both died and she's still barren. So Judah, her father-in-law, his moral obligation to Tamar would be exceedingly clear to every reader in the ancient world. We have to put ourselves in their position to understand the story. And his obligation would be to have her marry his third son, Shelah. And so he tells Tamar, as the reader would expect, you go home to your dad, I'm going to raise little Shelah, and when he's old enough, then I'll call you and you come marry him, and, and you can have kids by him. But secretly he says to himself, yeah, in her dreams I'll give Shelah to her. I've already lost two sons, and he never sends for her. He leaves 
her to wither and die alone. Now, after some period, Judah's wife dies. And Judah does not spend very much time mourning. There's a really interesting contrast between uh, the Joseph story when Jacob thinks that his son Joseph has died, he, he mourns and refuses to be comforted. In this story, Judah's wife died, doesn't mourn for very long, and he's happy to be comforted. He's ready to date again pretty quickly. But he's not an eHarmony guy or a Christian singles guy or even an R time for 50s plus guy. He's kind of a Tinder guy, swipe right. And that meant going down to a place called Timnah. Now, Tamar hears this. And to our surprise, this woman, this Canaanite woman, goes into action. She disguises herself as a prostitute, wears a veil so she can't be recognized. Judah comes by, propositions her, offers to pay her a young goat from the flock. She says he'll have to give her his seal and cord and staff as collateral, kind of like getting his credit cards or the password to his bank account in our day. He says, okay, they have sex. And although he doesn't know it, she gets pregnant by, remember, the father of her first two husbands. Remember, this is a Christmas story. Tell it to the kids if they're like in their 60s. Now Judah will be, you understand, both the father of Tamar's offspring and Tamar's father-in-law. This means, if you think it through, she will be the mother of these children and their sister-in-law. How messed up is this? Your family's doing great. This is in the Bible. Judah goes home tries to FedEx the goat down for payment, but nobody can find that prostitute by the side of the road. So he says, just forget it. I don't want word to get out that I slept with a prostitute. Be a laughingstock in everybody's eyes. Never mind. Several months pass. And then word comes to Judah that his widowed daughter-in-law, Tamar, is wearing widow maternity clothes. She'd gotten herself pregnant. Of course, he has no idea who the father is. So it's up to him as the father-in-law to figure out how to respond, what to do with her. And this is what he says. Judah said, Genesis 38, verse 24, Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. And even in the ancient world, that is remarkably brutal. So much so, very artfully told story in the text its brutality is expressed because it's just a two-word sentence. Bring, burn. And so they bring. But just when they're getting ready to light the match, she sends the seal and the cord and the staff to Judah with a message. I'm pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Ring any bells, Dad? That's an incredible story with layer upon layer. Judah, remember, was the man who sold his brother Joseph into slavery and took Joseph's robe, the coat of many colors, and dipped it in the blood of a goat and brought it to their father Jacob and said to him, see if you recognize whose robe this is. Now, Precisely the same language is used to confront Judah that Judah used with his dad Jacob. Once more, there is a story with misleading clothes and deep deception and a goat used to cover things up. And precisely the same question. See if you recognize this. Recognize ends up being a big word in this story. And your life and mine. 
And Judah is, in a single sentence now, forced to recognize his treachery, his sin, his brokenness, his, not only to his daughter-in-law, but decades earlier with his father Jacob and his brother Joseph. Judah recognized them, no kidding, and said, she is more righteous than I. God begins to do a work in him. They call off the execution. And Tamar lives. And she gives birth to a child, in fact, children, to two twins. And there's another really interesting struggle with the firstborn where the secondborn ends up being the one through whom the line of the children of Abraham flows. Tamar, the rejected Canaanite girl, gets to be a mother of Israel. She gets to be part of God's great adventure after all. So the moral of the story is, if you're a woman and your first husband dies from wickedness and you marry his brother and he refuses to impregnate you and he dies and your father-in-law won't let you marry son number three, just wait for your mother-in-law to die and pretend to be a prostitute and have your father-in-law's kids and it will all work out in the end. Merry Christmas, everybody. What a weird story, isn't it? How in the world did that get in the Bible? Conventionally religious people get a little squeamish reading this story in public. Like, couldn't Tamar have found a more wholesome way to deal with her problem? Sold Mary Kay or essential oils or learned how to do computer coding or something. Well, the Bible doesn't say. The ancient world was a pretty brutal place. Like our world. Anybody read what's going on with women in South Sudan right now? See, these are not little moral virtue fables in the Bible. They live in the real world where there is great evil. And the people are real and complex. And their actions are often ambiguous. And the reader has to puzzle things out. You've got to read the Bible with all of your mind. Um, people often have the impression that the Bible supports patriarchy because, of course, it was lived, written in a day when the world was patriarchal. But it's very interesting. In many stories in the Old Testament, like this one, one of the points is to undermine the evil that can be done by people with power or by patriarchal systems. Here is a woman, Tamar, who is marginalized because of her gender and her ethnicity and her status as a childless and now twice widowed uh, Gentile woman, she is the victim of sexual misconduct, and instead of being cowed into passive surrender, which the reader would expect, she shows remarkable courage and initiative and determination and creativity, and in the end, she triumphs over an oppressor and an unjust system that is completely stacked against her and becomes part of the great story. And the reason for this is that the major character in this story, the one you want to pay attention to, is God, and God cares about little Tamar. And God is intent on creating a redemptive, reconciling community. He wants a people to be with. And he wants all kinds of people that everybody thinks will be left outside. He wants to reconcile people to himself and to one another. And he goes to work even on wicked old Judah. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I. And that's the beginning of the glimmer of a little humanity in him. Many years later, 
The brothers are with Joseph, including Judah, once more, although they do not recognize Joseph. Joseph recognizes them. They don't recognize him. And in a very dramatic moment, in a situation that actually changes the moral trajectory of the human race, when a great scholar in a book that was published by Oxford University Press calls The Invention of Forgiveness in the History of the Human Race, it's Judah who plays the central role in the climactic verse in the book of Genesis. It's an amazing moment. If you want to find out about it, um, come back next week. That's when we're going to take up that story. But this is the story of Tamar. She gives birth to twins. And, of course, we wonder, what happens to Tamar? And what happens to these twins? And oddly enough, the writer of Genesis does not tell us. She never appears after the 38th chapter of the book of Genesis. And by the way, to learn her story, you have just watched the first animated sermon in the history of Menlo Church. Well, that a cool thing? Get him. Aaron Williams did that animation. I loved it. But Tamar does show up again in the Bible after about a thousand years, give or take. In fact, the New Testament begins with these words. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Really, Matthew? You're going to go there? Really? You're going to bring up that story? He didn't mention any of the other mothers, you know. He didn't say whose Isaac mom's was or whose Jacob's mother was. It's very odd. Uh, genealogies were a big deal in the ancient world. I know in our day, people read through the Bible, you see these long genealogies, you think really dull, boring, you know, don't care. Uh, they did not. In that day, genealogies were how people learned about their identity and their culture. All their stories were wrapped up in those names. They would memorize those genealogies and pass them down from one generation to another. It means we're somebody. We're a people. We got a tribe. We got a story. They were like action movies. They loved them. Hebrew genealogies did not include women, but this one does. Not just a woman, a woman who tricked her father-in-law into sleeping with her. And she's in the family tree of the Messiah. you got to be kidding me. Not just that, she's a Canaanite woman. She's not one of us. She's not an Israelite, which means, wait for it, Jesus isn't just, from an Israelite perspective, a pure-blooded our guy. He's partly their guy. He's partly Canaanite. Are you kidding me? And Tamar is not the only woman in the genealogy. It's really strange. Matthew includes a woman named Ruth, who was not Israelite, not only a woman, she was a Moabite. He includes a woman named Bathsheba, whom you might remember, uh, King David inflicted himself in an act of adultery. He includes another woman named Rahab, who is not just a Gentile, but a Gentile prostitute. It's like Matthew just poured over the Old Testament saying, who are the most disreputable characters I could stick into God's story? Who will tick everybody off when they read it? Why would Matthew do this? Because the time has come with Jesus to proclaim the gospel. Everybody's welcome. Nobody's perfect. Anything's possible. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not 
counting people's sins against them. Oh, God. Not counting my sins against me. You wonder what God is like. Now Jesus comes and we know. Outsiders aren't left outside anymore. And sinners and saints get all jumbled up. And grace starts flowing so heavily that Judah and Tamar are together again in Matthew. And their little children are the conduits through whom the love of God flows. Because God was in Jesus reconciling the world to himself. And there is a message in there for you and me in our world. If God can reconcile Israelite and Canaanite and Judah and Tamar and saints and sinners and prostitutes and patriarchs and oppressors with the oppressed, who lies beyond the reconciling? power of this Jesus. Nobody. Because it turns out, because it turns out, Tamar's story is a Christmas story, is a part of Jesus' story. And the most unlikely people end up coming in. And that's what the human race has loved so deeply about Jesus for 2,000 years. So, I want to close by making this story uh, as personal as I know how. I just got back uh, real late Friday night from what was kind of the trip of a lifetime. I went to the Galapagos Islands. You all ever hear the Galapagos Islands where Darwin was? And they have all these amazing, uh, unique species of animals that are protected. And it was so cool. I mentioned at the beginning of this message that prophets in Israel would sometimes picture uh, shalom, reconciliation, by using the image of animals where there was like peace and, and, uh, and no violence. And in the Galapagos, because all animals are protected and they have never been hurt by a human being, they just trust people and they let you come right up to them. I have a picture of a little sea lion being nursed by his mom and uh, they let me just walk up like close enough to touch him and didn't trouble them at all. He just looked at me like, you know, you thirsty, get in line and went right back to having something to drink and it was just like I was part of the family. You think about what might creation be like. We went snorkeling in wetsuits one afternoon. It was so amazing. I saw an octopus under the water. I swam. I love turtles. I swam up to a giant sea turtle that was eating algae off this rock close enough to touch him. The little thing darted past me, and then I realized as it was going, with so much speed and grace, it was a penguin. It was a Galapagos penguin. I looked down, no kidding, and I saw a shark. And you may wonder, because I'm a man of faith, was I afraid when I saw a shark snorkeling with me in the water? And I will not say, but that moment did give a new meaning to the term wet suit. Now, I was there with about 40 people, and the big question everybody would ask each other was, why did you come? And mostly it was to have these amazing experiences, to learn these amazing things, to see these amazing sights. But not me. I was there with my dad. My dad has loved animals ever since he was a boy. When he had kids and then grandkids and then great-grandkids, it was kind of an excuse to take them to the zoo. And he's always dreamed about the Galapagos his whole life, but never gone. And now he's 84 years old and has been through spinal stenosis and hip surgery and, and got diagnosed five or six years ago with what we thought was Bell's palsy at the time, but turned out to be another condition that 
We learned about this last year. They took intense treatment and makes balance very, very hard. And he's on this boat, people watching him navigate and telling me how inspired they were. Man, when I get to be your dad's age, I hope I have that kind of spirit and courage. So when people ask me, why did you come? The answer was really easy. I did it for my dad. I thought about how my dad has loved me since I was a little boy. Not perfectly. Thought about our memories, our joys, our conflict. Good moments and hard moments. I did it for my dad. Nobody in my life like my dad. You have a heavenly father who loves you. Who for some reason that God only knows wants to be with you more than he wants anything else. Wants it so much that he sent his only son Jesus to be born in a manger and die on a cross. If you're honest about it, kind of like Judah, there's some stuff in your relationship with your heavenly father that needs to get fixed. There's some distance. There's some behavior that you're not proud of. So I want to call you today, the beginning of this Advent season, be reconciled with God. Do it for your Father who loves you. Whatever needs to be confessed, confess it. Whatever needs to be changed or repaired or repented of, don't wait. Do it today. That habit, that relationship, that attitude. Make your heart right with God. This week in your busy, busy life, in your busy, busy world, take the time to read again carefully those first few chapters of Matthew and be amazed and astounded one more time at this tiny little life that changed history. That's God in a manger. Do you recognize him? That's God on a cross dying. Do you recognize him? That's Jesus in what everybody else thinks is the least of these. Do you recognize him? In, in your story, in your life, make room every day this Christmas season in your busy life, in this busy world, for the king who could find no room in the inn. And gang, you can do this, whatever's going on. You can live a fully surrendered life with God helping you. You don't have to carry the burden of guilt. And then, of course, comes this wonderful charge that we'll talk about in two weeks. Paul says, and God has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. No kidding. The world is a mess, but God loves the world. And he has a message. The unwanted are wanted by God, and the unchosen are chosen by God, and the unblessed are blessed by God. So this Advent season, you can say yes to the ministry of reconciliation and include the unincluded. We have services Christmas Eve coming up, people in your life who may think they're real far from God, but but for some reason, this time of year, they just kind of open up sometimes, and you can help them take that next step. You can invite the uninvited. Because, see, our world is one great story, one weird, amazing story. And it includes the most unlikely people. 
And it ends up with somebody like Tamar right there next to the manger, right there next to the Christ child, right there listening to the angels. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. That's the story. Merry Christmas. Would you pray with me? And I want to give you a moment of what I know is a busy season to talk to God about your relationship with Him. And maybe if you're honest, you've never really uh, made the commitment that your relationship with God is the most important priority of your life, and you want to do that today. And you're tired of carrying the burden of guilt, regret, or folly. And this is your moment. You tell him, God, I want to confess my regrets and my guilt and my uh, sin. And I want to be forgiven. And I want to follow Jesus above all else. I want Jesus to be my Savior and my friend and my leader from this day forward as you help me. And God will do that. God is so much closer than you have any idea. And he responds to the open heart. And he will walk with you all through this life. And you can let me know or Eugene know or uh, anybody so that you can start growing spiritually. Or maybe you've walked with God for some time, but there's some area in your life that's created a distance between you and him. Maybe it's a habit. Maybe it's a relationship that's been going in the wrong direction and it needs to stop today. You need to make that decision. Maybe it's some kind of dark secret in your life that you need to bring into the light. Just tell him right now. Be reconciled to God. God, thank you that you are a father who loves us. And although it's often hard for us to see when we look at ourselves, when we see the stories of other people, we can be reminded again, there's nobody you don't love. There's nobody you don't want. There's nobody you don't choose. Thank you, God, for the great story of Jesus and that list of names that goes on and on and on of unlikely people that get folded in and that gets to include us. Now we give you our hearts. We give you our worship. You are our Father. And we love you. And we want you to know. And we tell you now. In Jesus' name, amen.